So if a person hates black people, it may not necessarily be that they hate black people. Absolutely. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Like, it's just a drug of choice. You yeah. know, I mean... It's a symptom of the malady. Yes. It's okay. definitely... There's something that causes it, but it doesn't reflect anything on the person that is being targeted at all. Uh-huh. Right? Like... I hated people based on my experiences, but there's a lot of people out there that will have experiences with white people but become racist towards black. Yeah. And it's just, you just meet people where they're at. And the one thing that you need to realize is that extremism doesn't make sense. So stop trying to make it make sense. Welcome to Indie Thinker with Reed Uberman. You're about to make the jump from the dishonest mainstream media into free and independent thought from key thought leaders on the subjects of culture, causes, politics, and faith. Welcome to Indie Thinker Live. I am Reed Huberman, and we've got a great show for you today. Not only do we have an amazing guest, Chris Buckley is, is going to join us, and um, I'm going to introduce him in just a moment, but we've also got a great live studio audience with us here tonight. <laughs> We did not liquor them up. All right, um, it's going to be a fantastic conversation. Uh, before we jump into it today, I want to make sure to let you guys know, uh, if you are a listener or a watcher of the podcast, right, by the way, raise your hand, anybody that's in the audience tonight, if you watch and or listen to Indie Thinker. All right, for those of you who did not lift your hand, shame on you. You can still take time right now to subscribe on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts. But uh, you will know that a longtime sponsor of the show is Element Funding. And I don't want to miss an opportunity to thank these guys for all of the great work that they do to help us produce a great show. So um, Element Funding is your one-stop shop for all of your mortgage needs. If you're looking to refinance a home or purchase a new home and you want to get great customer service and go to a place that you can trust, you need to check out Element Funding. So to do that, you need to go to Kevin Blair Team com where you can go get pre-approved for a home loan today and you can do that totally for free and when you do so you can let them know that any thinker sent you uh, that team over there is just a bunch of great people who cares about the things that you care about so if you care about supporting businesses that care about the things you care about then you need to check them out so go to kevinblairteam.com all right now that we have done that let me introduce you to our amazing guest today and I have to say I really do believe that conversation is the cure for so much of what we're facing in this nation. We're going to be talking about extremism today. And what I've said is that we're pulling back the curtain on extremism to, uh, to talk about both sides of the aisle, because so very often we're only hearing about one side of extremism. But we're going to talk about it today and then hopefully provide some kind of some kind of hope, a silver lining, um, some answers to it as well. Uh, so nonetheless, um, we have Chris Buckley, who is uniquely qualified to do that. Chris Buckley is a veteran. He is a former KKK member, and he now works with Parents for Peace to help people escape extremism and find hope instead of hate. He's also one of the subjects of a brand new documentary, Refuge, a film that, as far as I can tell, hasn't been released yet, but is a film about unlikely friendships and uh, friendships that take place in unlikely places. So um, if you want to check out the, doc uh, the documentary or at least the trailer for that documentary, has it been released yet, Chris? It has not. Okay. Uh, it's, we're, we're still hitting the film festivals, trying to get those out of the way first. Okay. I look for the later part of the year, early next year, it should be on a streaming service. Somewhere. Okay, perfect. Yeah, great. But you can see for now the trailer to that, and I will put that down into this in the description of, of this podcast where you can access that. So you definitely want to check that out. It's going to be amazing. Uh, but uh, Chris has a long tenure of trying to uh, not only experiencing extremism, but helping people escape extremism. So Chris, thank you so much for being on the show, man. 
Absolutely, dude. So um, I think it's an important time for you to ha be having these conversations and certainly for you to be on the show today because it seems like, and I hope this is not the case, but it seems like we're living in a very tenuous time in America where division and polarization just seems palpable. There's even talk. Um, I don't like this talk because I, I don't know how accurate it is, but it, there's even talk about like this impending civil war and what is going to be the thing that kind of fractures this nation permanently where, where we are at each other's throats. And th there's a lot of things being discussed right now. Not to mention, uh, I have to speak about the elephant in the room, the January 6th commission as well is going on right now. And so there's a lot of talk of extremism, especially in this present administration. And I wanted to start by asking you this. Uh, you were, a, because I think this illustrates kind of where we're at as a nation on, on this subject, but you were, correct me if I'm wrong, a part of an A&E documentary about extremism and specifically about the Ku Klux Klan. Is that correct? Yeah. So when I first started my journey getting out and leaving the movement, uh, we were approached by A&E, um, I can't remember what the name of the production company was, but they were with A&E, and they wanted to do a show that mirrored the, the TV show Escaping Polygamy or, you know, one of the other dramas that they had about, like, my journey leaving the, the KKK. And, uh, like, immediately, as soon as it was talked about, people were like, oh, my God, it's giving the KKK a platform. And, like, they tried to shut it down. But then turns out, later on, that there were a bunch of other cast members from like the other cities that were going on that were like, that were getting paid for it. Like, I was so mad. I was like, <laughs> wait a minute, like, I could have been getting paid for this. And yeah, so it went, uh, it went under real quick. So now it's locked in A&E's vault. Never to see the light of day so, again. So, so just to illustrate that for the for those of you guys who are watching, listening, and in the audience. So this documentary was going to come out, and it was in 2020. Is that right? Ah. Uh. I don't remember I exactly wanna, when. I, we started filming it in like 2017. Okay. I think the release date was around 2020. So you guys know that was a really kind of palpable time in our nation. But nonetheless, they they canned the documentary and never showed it, even though they had already promoted it on A&E and all that stuff, simply because they felt like it was giving a platform to hate, rather than what it was actually doing, which was just describing... We actually changed the name. At first, it was going to be... Uh, I forget, uh, Generation KKK, and they were like, oh, that gives a platform to the KKK, and I, I kind of agreed. I was like, yeah, that kind of does, like, and then they were like, well, let's change it, change it to Escaping the KKK, and then, you know, I mean, if Escaping the KKK gave a platform to the KKK, then <laughs> Escaping Polygamy gave a platform to polygamists. Like, I mean, that's that's my, my rap. Yeah, there's a, it's almost like this... this Double standard? This, this double standard, for sure, but also, like, there's these conversation pieces that are off-limits, like, you can't talk about them. So we'll dig into that a little bit, but I yeah. think that... Let's kind talk of, about those. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's, that's what I like. Let's talk about the things you're not, you're told not to talk about. Exactly. Um, so, uh, so let's just start with you though. So let's, with that as the backdrop, kind of as like, where, as it, where we're at as a nation, um, let's talk about you. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio in the mid nineties. Uh, I'm an eighties baby and I don't really remember a whole lot until like the late eighties, early nineties. So I just say I'm a nineties baby, but like, I'm definitely an early eighties baby. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, so Cleveland, Ohio, how did you end up in, uh, this area? So, I I have no idea. Um, it just woke up one day and wasn't wasn't in Ohio anymore. Um, no, I. So my dad was 
Man, like that's a whole podcast in its own, man. Um, he was very violent, alcoholic, wasn't home very often at all. When he was, it was to stop and drop his paycheck off to mom so she could pay bills for the week. And the rest of it was spent at the bar until he ran out of money. And then he would crawl home with his black eye and pass out on the couch. Um, when he would wake up, I was the subject of his frustration and kind of resentment. Dad was 19 when he got mom pregnant. She was 16, and I'm pretty sure I wasn't planned, and I was kind of a burden on his his plans in life. And he didn't make any any bones about letting me know that growing up, right? Like, it was very much, I had to stop what I was doing to raise you. And it was like, yeah, because I remember I put in my application in the testicles and was like, I want to be born now. Like, you know, that's that's my, my job application, and I was hired by mom. So, uh, you know, but so he comes home one weekend, and, like, my dad was, like, a racist from, like, way back. Like, everybody, everything was the Hispanic's fault. He couldn't have a job. But it wasn't the fact that he couldn't pass a drug test or show up more than five days consecutive. But, but the Hispanics were stealing his jobs, you know. Um, mom couldn't get assistance when she was younger because the blacks were laying on the welfare system and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, like, and I was a kid. I didn't know any better. But So dad shows up one weekend, and he was like, I'm moving you guys to Southern Ohio. You've got 24 hours to get everything into this U-Haul. And what you don't pack is staying, and we're moving to Southern Ohio where I've got us a place and a job, and we're, changing, we're moving our life down there. So that happened, then the Army happened, and I met my wife, my lovely wife, Melissa, who her family was from Georgia, but she lived in Kentucky, and there was an interaction there where we met. And okay. So Got out of the army kind of the and just kept migrating. All right, so I want to go to the army, but before I do that, um, I, me and you compared tattoos before the show, and I think you beat me by just a little. By how, one. But how many tattoos do you have? Do I you have know? one. You have one? I've, I look at it as if they touch, they're considered one. Oh, okay. So, like, I have one huge tattoo. Okay, we'll go with that. I'm not going to ask you, like... like how much of your body is covered anyway um, i mean I'm, I'm pretty good from the waist up and i've got some real estate from the waist down but some, some. i leave a little to imagination because a boy's got to do you know yeah. so yes well thank you for not getting too graphic yeah. um all right so so i can understand maybe you wanting to escape some of that upbringing and that's really fascinating too because i, I wanted you to dig into that because i wondered if there is any kind of any kind of familial connection to your your future with with the KK code, but bef before we get into that, um, uh, and by that I mean, by the way, that your your there were racist tendencies oh, in your yeah. dad, and then that those kind of get passed on to kids. Yeah. Because I, you well, know, you have three three forms of grooming: you have direct, indirect, and like just full out targeted. Yeah. Like, what groups are you targeting to radicalize and to groom? I mean, it's the same with sex trafficking. You know, you have indirect grooming. You have direct grooming, and then you have targeted grooming. So it's the same thing with extremism. Yeah, absolutely. That, that stuff has to be taught. It doesn't come naturally to people. So um, so what about this? So what motivated you to join the military? So when I was uh, growing up, you know, I mean, you, you guys see my little boy and his buddy, his best friend, they're, they're 10. Uh, at 10 years old, I was going through a lot that no kid should have to go through. And my escape from that was baseball. And uh, it's still emotional. I love the game. Um, it provided a release for me from reality, from the things that were going on at home. I was, uh, I was aggressively molested as a kid by my mom's brother from the age of, say, five 
when I can remember till probably 12. And so baseball was my, my escape from that. Um, the Army recruiters and the Marine recruiters and all those guys that were starting to groom kids at that early age were, uh, were showing up at the school, and I just became enamored with the fact that, like, when the recruiters were in school, like, all the girls at school didn't care about the football players. It was those guys. And I was like, I just I want to get as far away from this life as I can, and, and I want what they have, you know, what, what 17, 18-year-old kid doesn't. So, I mean... I just, I remember I, I decided I was going to join the Army. I I wanted to join the Marine Corps, but I didn't like the way they wore their collar up on their neck and, and a belt with a, a jacket. And I was like, so, you know, I'll go with the Army. Theirs was the next best, in my opinion. Understandable. Yeah, and how much, uh, how long were you in the Army? 13 years. All right, and you served in active duty. Uh, you were in Afghanistan. Tell us a little bit about that, because that kind of dovetails into your foray into kind of the extremist world. So, like, I just got a flashback from the movie Forrest Gump where he's like, tell us about Vietnam. And he's like, Vietnam. <laughs> and that's all I have to say about that. Um, no, but so Afghanistan was just a, it was a culture shock. You train your entire life uh, for the mission. And then you don't realize when you're going through the training. Um, and I'm going to catch a lot of crap for this. And I don't care. I mean, I'll die on this hill. The U.S. military radicalizes their soldiers in order to complete an effective, be able to complete their mission effectively. And one of the first tools of, of being able to survive combat is to dehumanize the enemy uh, with things like calling them hajis and like derogatory terms. Yeah. Uh, I can't say it, but like there's a lot out there, uh, you know, camel jockeys, sand, insert N-word here. Um, just beasts. They're they're filthy savages. Um, that's the way we're taught to look at them. And yeah, we're there for hearts and minds. But like we're soldiers, hearts and minds is out the window. Our job is to keep each other safe and to take life. Right? Let's not let's not make any bones about what our job is. I can be a water purification expert in the army, but my job is to take life and to save life when it's necessary. And the life of my comrades comes before. Anybody else? Uh, Vietnam's where we really started to see the the dehumanization of the entire group of people because the lack of uniforms, the lack of identification. Everybody was VC. Uh, same thing in Afghanistan and Iraq. There's no uniforms. Everybody's your enemy until they're not, and then they're your enemy again. Um, so you live in this constant state of hypervigilance. Uh, every target that I ever shot at in a training exercise besides the lanes that were the green pop-up targets, like your 300-meter qualification range, were of traditional military-age Muslim males with an AK-47 pointed at me or an AK or RPG or a suicide vest. And so you build this, this verbal dehumanization plus this visual stimulation yeah. that this is what the enemy looks like, along with your training scenarios where every person that you run into that's playing the part of a, of a Muslim is the enemy and out to do some sort of harm or deceit or sabotage, then you kind of build this predisposition that this is the enemy. And um, so, I mean, like, just training constantly, I didn't realize it at the time. I didn't realize what was happening until I got home, reintegrated, ended up on drugs, ended up an extremist, recovered from all of that, and then was like, <laughs> 
how did this happen? Let's like let's break it down. And I was like, oh wow, yeah. Like, but to to say that to to a certain group of people is fighting words. Like my soldiers are not. It's like I hold on, pal. Like I was one of those soldiers, and I'm telling you what happened. Like, and most of the pushback you get are from people that's never been in the military. So like they know best, and it's like. I, I mean, like, I'm not going to go to my buddy Haval yeah. and be like, this is how you do heart surgery. But, I mean, at the same time, not everybody that goes in comes out an extremist. So there is something a little bit more to the story. You have story. to have a predisposition, definitely. Um, and so talk to me about your tattoo and what happened to you while you were serving. One? The infidel one, yeah. Yeah, so that's the coffer. Uh, it's infidel. While I was in, like, my entire unit got this. And, like, we just seen... We were we were still conflicted when we'd see things, right? Like there was definitely a language barrier, but to see the 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 way that the females and the children were treated, I mean, we would have guys show up to our local national meetings to get health care for their dogs, and their wife is like dying in the back of the truck bed, and they're like, no, no, just the dog, like fix the dog, and you know, like a dog's place in Middle Eastern society is higher than a woman's. Like, dog is man's best friend. Woman is there to breed children. That's it. Um, so, like, we were conflicted. Like, I seen, I seen my mother. I seen my girlfriend at the time. And it was, like, it was hard, man. And so, like, we would see that, you know, you would come up where the Taliban had moved through an area and a woman was accused of whatever, like, looking at another man and they would stone her. Like, you would still, you would see her. She would be buried to her chest and like have holes in her head from the rocks they threw at her. Mm -hmm. uh, they would also they they would often make the children start the stoning process so that they could indoctrinate the children that your mom was a Hazra or Haram or you know whatever they call it uh, to kind of keep them in line under Taliban or, or whatever rules. So you know that started it, and then you know I I always tried to maintain a very balanced. Relationships. So, for example, uh, there was a guy on our fob in Oregon e when I was whenever I was on the base and I wasn't traveling or you know moving back and forth on a mission. I kind of got in like really good with the guy. His name was uh, Abdul, mm -hmm. and he was a tailor by trade. And we were a couple years different from each other, but he looked a hundred years older, right? Um, but I would go every time I had the chance at noon and drink tea with him at his shop it was on the base so it was safe i didn't have to like stress out but like we would talk he would tell me about his family off base and how he just dreamed for a life for his kids that mine were gonna get to experience and i would tell him about my my life back home and like, we got to be friends and uh one day i was i was i'd been off the fob for a couple weeks um i get back and i go to the tailor shop and it's closed and i was like well, where's abdul you know he's been closed for two days abdul was arrested for trying to build an IED inside the bunker that our U.S. soldiers took refuge in mm. during rocket attacks. So he was trying to exponentiate the loss of life while we were overseas. And, like, that was that was hard for me because, like, I had no wall up. I was completely vulnerable with him. And, like, it was the first, like, real betrayal that I felt that I didn't expect coming. Shortly after, my, my buddy Daniel Wallace was... Uh, We've been through the military together, and we stop. Our load was shifting on the route, and he, you know, they come across the radio. It was like, hey, this load's going to fall over in the middle of this riverbed if you guys don't get out and tighten the binders down. And uh, 
So I was gunning on that trip, and I was hot. I needed a cigarette. I'm on 5,000-some-odd pounds of ammo. I can't smoke in a vehicle. He chewed, he chewed tobacco. We both had to pee, right? Now, we always have a urinal when we're, when we're on the route for, you know, 100, 200 miles at 50 miles an hour. You, you'll find a way to pee. Yeah. I needed a cigarette. So I'm arguing with him. He's my assistant gunner. I was like, just man a gun. I'll get out, tighten everything down. I can smoke a cigarette while I'm out there, and I won't shoot you by the end of the trip. Like, I won't drop a grenade in the hatch and just let you eat that. Uh, he was a little bigger than me, and we started tussling, goofing off. The back door on the MRAP popped open, and he beat me to the back, and he hopped out, and he was like, ha-ha, and he disappeared. And I was like, what the hell was that? So I get over, I start to lean out. I was going to laugh at him and poke fun at him for falling and, and losing footing. And uh, when I leaned out the back of the MRAP, I seen him laying there. This eye was open and still kind of traveling, but this eye was swelled shut, and... I've, I grew up in, in the outdoors. I've always been an avid outdoorsman and deer hunter. I've experienced post-mortem reflex. It's common to happen when you take the life of an animal. Uh, nervous system, things happen. I did not expect what was happening, like, in the least. I mean, I, I didn't take my Kevlar out of the vehicle. I left my rifle in the truck, and I'm out there trying to pack a wound on the back of his head that, it was, he was gone. He was gone as soon as the bullet hit him. But I didn't know that. There was still a yawning type of reflex. And I was like, he's trying to breathe. He'd say, I can keep him breathing. And I attempted to give... I, I attempted to give a dead man CPR. And... Uh, I don't remember a whole lot after that. Um, remember I had my sunglasses on. And there was a picture that was taken after we got back. Like, I drug him up into the MRAP, and everybody was like, dude, you gotta, we got to put him on a bird. We have to get him medevaced. And I'm like, he's dead. Like, he's dead. He started this mission with me, and he's finishing it. He's my best friend. And uh, I remember a colonel was coming over the radio, and he was like, Sergeant Buckley, you will stop that vehicle. And... Uh, I, I had the first time I'd ever disrespected my, my spirit officers openly on a network. Um, we did not stop and put him on a bird. We drove the last 14 miles hmm. with him in my lap. Um, the anger that came from that was the same anger I felt towards the homosexual community because of the molestation, right? Like yeah. it was the equal comparison to that violence that was inside of me that trauma was awakened and it was like the only time in my life i'd ever felt anything comparable to what happened when i when i was molested as a kid so yeah all right so you get back home and then this is where you kind of uh this is where the kkk comes in and your introduction into the clan so um i'm kind of curious how so, so you've already set the stage, right? So there's this background of kind of hate, and then it's kind of undergirded by this experience where you see somebody from a foreign nation kill one of your best friends, and then these uh, maybe whatever happens to you in the military to kind of reinforce that kind of background um, that was given to you as a kid. So you come home, and I'm only assuming, uh, reeling from your experience, how did you get introduced to the clan, and why did that become a place where you sought, um, sought 
I'll say refuge, but I don't want to put words in No, I mean, it was. It absolutely was. That's why the title of the movie is so important, because refuge can be a lot. Refuge can be shelter from a storm. It can be shelter from danger. It can be a place you seek, you know, bad shelter. You know, I mean, just because it's just a, a, a shelter. Yeah. Um, so when I got home, I got home in March of 2009. Um, I transitioned to National Guard. This is, I just, I needed a minute, you know. Uh, and immediately after transitioning to the National Guard, I was deployed to Jackson, Kentucky on a state active duty mission. There was a tornado and a flood, and they said, look, your, your unit's going down there for a couple of weeks. You're going to do humanitarian missions. So I was like, all right, that's welcome relief from what I've just been through. So I get down there, and uh, the lieutenant, um, I can't remember his name. I'm not even going to dignify him by saying his name. Uh, but he decided that he didn't want to have the military-issued vehicle that he was given. He wanted to go to his house and pick up his motorcycle so he could drive that around. I mean, he was a young single guy. I mean, I'm not knocking it. I probably would have, too, if I had a motorcycle as a soldier, you know, and pick up some of the local wildlife. Um, but so the thing that he didn't realize was that, like, that the vehicle that he picked up was deadlined. And in the military, that means that it's inoperable. It can't leave the motor pool. It has a very detrimental damage to it that could take life, limb, or eyesight. So that was the vehicle that he drove all the way to Jackson, Kentucky to pick his, his motorcycle up with and then dropped off there. So somebody's got to drive that vehicle back after the mission. It was this guy. So we're driving down Interstate 64 right outside Olive Hill, Kentucky, cruising along. I mean, we'd been up since 3 in the morning. It's 1 o'clock in the afternoon. We're just tunnel vision, you know. Them Humvees do about 55. We had them pegged at 60, 65 because there's some tricks that you can you can get them up a little bit faster and I guess the the convoy leader just kind of dozed and blew by his exit, locked his brakes up. So everybody followed suit, locking their brakes up. You just see the white smoke billowing. And the vehicle in front of me started to turn, and it was a soft-shell Humvee. Um, And I knew that if I had to hit my brakes, I would probably wreck. And I was like, they're sliding this way. I'm just going to veer around this way and just pull off in a medium, and we'll get lined back up. Well, when they started their slide... They started this way, and then they come back this way. So I'm already going this way. They start coming this way, and I have to hit my brakes. I'm looking probably from here to where you're at. The kid that was driving the other Humvee is looking at me like this. His eyes are this big. He's got three other passengers in that vehicle. I'm in the vehicle by myself, and I'm like, I'm going to kill this kid. Like, I'm going to cut through this Humvee and, or at least drive over top of it. Like It's going gonna, it's gonna to kill them all. So I slammed on the brakes, and I just tried to cut the wheel so we could side bump each other. And when I did that, the back axle snapped on that Humvee at 60 miles an hour. I'd probably slowed down to about 50, we'll say, because this all happened really fast. The back end dipped, threw it up. The bumper caught the ground. I flipped it once end over end. That flipped me sideways, and I did seven barrel rolls down the highway. My Kevlar broke. It flew out the window. They thought that it was my helmet. They thought that my helmet was my head. So, like, they left me laying in the vehicle for a minute, and I'm, like, starting to climb out on my own. And they were like, oh, my God, he's alive. Like, Thanks, guys. Good like, friends, yeah. Yeah, but um, so that was my introduction to opiate painkillers. I uh, broke my back. Um, so I remember 
you know, waking up in the hospital and going back to sleep, waking up, going back to sleep. And it finally was released, and I was able to walk out of the hospital. I had a compression fracture, the L1 and 2, and the doctor said that the swelling happened so fast. When I landed, I folded in half, and it just crushed all three vertebrae. Uh, my knees basically went behind my head. And uh, I remember when, like, I started to come to, and, like, uh, the painkillers made everything numb. Mm-hmm. Like... Like, I was numb. Like, I liked it. I was like, I don't have to think about anything. I don't care about anything. I really enjoyed those. So it was like an escape. Yeah, so they became my drug of choice was painkillers. Well, eventually, the painkillers get cut off. You're not Mm -hmm. prescribed them anymore. So that started my illegal activities into, like, hey, you got any painkillers you sell? Your grandma still got any? So I'd buy those. And then... Eventually, the painkillers weren't strong enough, so I, I upgraded to, to heroin. I moved into methamphetamines. I moved, you know, there were, there's nothing on this earth that I haven't put in my body, uh, substance abuse-wise. Yeah. Uh, sometimes multiple things at once. And the escape that that allowed me was unparalleled. The problem with that was it also opened me up cognitively to... The anger, the trauma, the the frustration, the the sickness that was inside of me that I had just packed away for so long. And I, I'm not making an excuse. No, yeah. I'm just like I'm trying to make some sort of sense of it. And this is the sense that I've made in taking accountability for what I got involved in. Um, that when you release that, it feels good. There's a certain pleasure that you get from retaliation from seeking justice that you get from being high. Mm -hmm. And the reason is that the same parts of our brain that fire for addiction pleasure are also the same parts of our brain that fire for like retaliation and justice seeking. Your amygdala, your nucleus accumbent, your prefrontal and bilateral cortex, uh, the dopamine center of your brain is affected. So I actually, through drugs, started to lash out involuntary at first. Like I would see like the, the Indian gas station clerks and I would be like terrorists, right? Just over here to blow something up. And you know, then we just, you, you have these isolated incidents of like terror attempts and yeah. it's always Middle Eastern. And I'm like, okay, I vote like this is going to blow a lot of your minds, right? Like, so everybody's like, oh, so you, you radicalized under President Trump. Like, not at all. I de radicalized under President Trump, hmm. right? I come out of the movement of hate and extremism under President Trump. I voted for President Obama because I wanted to be part of that history that elected the first black president. Sometimes we do things because we can and not because we should. Um, just because I can stab myself in a leg doesn't mean I should, uh, but I'm free to do so. Just like voting for a person based on their skin color, based on their merit. Yeah. Okay. Um, which is what we see the current president doing. Uh, I'm going to nominate the first black female. Why didn't you just do that and not have to, to vocalize it? Because now she's never going to be known as anything other than the affirmative action judge. I know, but she's really, really good at she her, is. her job. Um, yeah, or Kamala Harris is really good, too, because yeah. there's, like, especially with the passage of time, 
and when time passes, <laughs> you have this passage of time that yes. allows time to pass, and then we're back to where time originally passed. So, yes. Um, but yeah, so back to the radicalization part. I, I voted for Obama for the wrong reasons, but nonetheless... Now, were you still in the Klan at that point in time? Or no, I was in the were... Army at this point. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, 2008, I think, was yeah, his first. That's yeah, that's right. So I voted for Obama, one, because, like... Politics weren't a part of my life. Like, yeah. when you're in the military, you have two sets of politics that very, like, they concern you. That is sergeant majors and the colonels. Like, other politics, what's going on back at home? Like, you're not even worried about what your girlfriend's doing back at home. Mm. Like, you have the sergeant major's dress code and the colonel's rules and everything else is back burner. Yeah. So I come home after, you know, throwing my my ticket in the hat for, you know— I feel like voting for Obama was the start of my racism because I voted on him based on his skin color. Like, like that was probably the start of it, and I just didn't realize it because it's not mm. it's not looked down upon to do that. Dude, that's that. so interesting. I, I know we, we want to get to the part where you actually get introduced to them, but that is so interesting because I think identity politics is a form yeah, of absolutely. racism. Yeah, absolutely, and it's manipulated. Yeah. Like, you can't turn the TV on nowadays without... Like, I can't... Well, we'll get there. Yeah. Um, so, I... I come home and I witness this, what I perceive, right, as this all-out assault on, like, fresh meat. Like, are you pro-life or pro-choice? Mm -hmm. Are you Republican or Democrat? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Is there, like, is there a test I can take <laughs> to find out? It's like, well, do you like guns? I'm like, they've saved my life literally. Like, I'm, I'm, they're the tools of my Ask a carpenter if he likes hammers. Yeah. Like, yeah, he loves them. He can tell you every hammer there is, what the different types are, what you use it for. And I can do that with guns. And to be told that guns are bad by somebody who doesn't own a gun is like, cool. <laughs> yeah. Right? Okay. Something like that. Yeah. I start to witness like that and become a, I become tempted by society to put me in this box. Yeah. And I don't even know that the boxes exist yet. I'm just now learning what's going on. Um, and that's how it started. It started as a joke. Like, all right, well, fine. I'll, I'll just stick to my own because that's what everybody else is doing. And I remember I was really bad off on drugs. And this is like, it's such a trivial, like, concept. But this is how I was pushed to seek out, like, and get involved with the Klan. So I bought my drugs off a guy in Somerville, Georgia, right? And, like, we were cool. He was black. I was white. We laughed about racism. Like, so I get home that night. I'd been up for a few days. Um, and I get there, and he's on the couch with my wife's sister, Marie. I was just, I was angry. I was like, dude, this, like, that's my sister. Like, her sister's my sister. This is before she just fell off and became crazy. And I was like, dude, get out of my house, man. Like, I was like, I guess it's up to me to protect the white race because you're not going to do it. You know, I had this big lecture with them, and I was like, my wife was just like, she just sat back. She was like, I, I, don't, I don't want no part of this. Like, you feel one way. I don't feel that way. And you're, you're not going to drag me into this. But I absolutely did drag her into it. I yeah. drug her down through there for about five years. Um, so, I just, so is that how long you were part of the Klan? Uh, so three years, like, actively. Like, as soon as I got out of the Army, like, within the first three months, I was kind of, like, hanging out with local militia groups because it was an easier transition 
Um, I could still train. I could pass my skill set along. And then I realized that these guys were trying to, like, overthrow the government. I was like, <laughs> all right, I'm going to head out. Right? Yeah. Like, I don't need to be here. I'm in danger. Uh, so I kind of left that scene. And, and through that group, through those groups, I met some members of, of the KKK. And, okay. you know. So now when you say members of the KKK, we're talking about, like, like white robe wearing, cross white burning. White robes, pointy hats. Like, yeah. those guys, yeah. Um, but that only happens in the woods now. Right, mm-hmm. because after the clan laws of like the sixties or fifties, I can't remember. Like you can't wear a hood and mask. In, you can't wear a mask in public anymore. COVID. Um, <laughs> but you know, as long as it's not a white mask, you can wear a blue mask and sunglasses, and that's okay. Yeah. But like, as long as it's not a racist mask or burkas. So or, you spent so you spent about like five years in the clan in this like racist type of extremist movement. Um, so I started my exit. In 2016, right? And I spent about two years trying to get out because... Let me step back, though, real quick. Did you, did you ever think, like, oh, my God, I'm in the Klan? Or what, what was... I'm just curious about I the I mean, trend. like, so there were times where I would be like, oh, my God. What am I doing? Um, uh, I'm in the Klan. And then there was other times where it's like, oh, my God, I'm in the Klan. And then there was other times where I was like... No, I'm not in the clan at all. What are you talking about, man? Like, yeah. what is, like, you're crazy. And then there's just so many different responses depending on the level of drugs and anger that I had in my system at the time. Okay, I do want to ask this because I, I do want you to continue the story a little bit, but I do want to ask this because I've always been curious about this. At the time when you were in the clan before you were kind of getting getting out, um, did you did you actively extend hate toward black people or was it more a social experiment while you were with that group of so people? So it was definitely a social experiment because like, and, and I've told my, my buddy, my brother Jamie over there, man, like, like I wasn't really there for the whole like blacks and Jews thing, right? Uh-huh. Like I was there to hate gays and Muslims, right? Like everybody has a, fl- like everybody's got their favorite restaurant yeah. and it's like, this is my favorite dish. And like, you know, every like at B-dubs, you know all the wings are good, but like these, these are what I'm here for. Like, I don't really care about the burgers or anything. Like, I'm here for these. Yeah. So like, that was me. Like, I'm just here to hate, you know, Muslims and, and homosexuals. And they was like, yeah, but let me tell you how the Jews play a part in that. And I'm like, cool, but like, Muslims, yeah. let's, <laughs> let's keep it on track. So it was kind of one of those things that you just like, it was the best fit group based on my current belief systems and you kind of have to adopt some other belief systems that like you just go along to go along. Yeah. Right. Like what part did, um, camaraderie with the military and, and coming out and like, not, not only like the purposelessness of not having somebody to tell you what to do and to be there and to command you and to give you a mission, but also the camaraderie of your fellow soldiers. How, what, what part did that play in you joining the clan? I missed it. I missed just my battle buddies, my brothers. Like I came out with this, this huge extended family, like, you know, to having nobody right from living with guys 23, 24 hours a day, uh, you know, sleeping in the same cot with each other. Cause there's not enough bunk space and you'll sleep, you know, head to feet after not showering for three or four days and share your meal. Because like I got an MRE, come on, we'll split it. You know, and until we can get somewhere for food and going to having nothing, like you're just alone. Uh, I think that played a part 
And I think that I was even more enticed by like extremist groups because, well, for one, I ran into a lot of veterans in those groups. Like the guy who recruited me in was a Navy veteran, same age as me. Um, the Imperial Nighthawk, which is like the guy who does all the vetting and the security and they wear the black robes, was a Marine Corps vet. It got out about five years before me. Uh, some of the older just members of the group were veterans from Vietnam or, you know, but there was even older that were there from the Korean War. Like, there was a high percentage. And when I say a high percentage, I mean within reason that, you know, the racist percentage of people in this country is very minimal, Right. It's a very small group of people that are like truly racist, mm -hmm. but like we've identified everything as racist. So yeah. like if no, if everybody's racist, then nobody's racist. Yeah. So I we're back at square one. I have this thought about that, too, because I think so much of what we're seeing, whether it be um, whether it be in, in like an extremist group like the Klan or whether it be even in sexual orientation or maybe even in the transgender community, I, I think so much of what is happening right now in society is really it, a search for meaning, a desperate search to matter and to find a group of people that will affirm you and love you. Yeah. I mean, like, I'm, I mean, like, so my sisters are uh, a same-sex couple. They're also my kids' godparents. If anything were to happen to me, those two women are going to raise my children, and I love them the same as I would love myself or my wife or another person. Like, I trust them. They're, they're good people. Yeah. And I've known them my entire life. And So that being said, coming from a guy who openly would seek out and assault homosexual people for fun on a Saturday night, um, I will say this. We are opening the door to have conversations around mental health and extremism. Mm -hmm. Very necessary. PTSD, trauma. Uh, I, in the work that I do with these people who are involved in extremism and family members of people involved with extremism, see a high level of, you know, ASD, uh, spectrum autism, yeah. uh, ADHD. Just there's a lot of mental health that goes into this. Yeah. And with that, we are opening the door to talk about extremism in mental health. Yep. By proxy, if we're willing to talk about mental health and how it plays a role in extremism, we have to realize what extremism is. Yeah. Extremism is taking anything that is socially normal and, you know, magnifying it to a level that is taboo or unnatural to the rest of that social norm, right? So yeah. I just did a Kamala Harris. Social <laughs> norms about social norms but, so that if it's not social but you norm, made a good point. norm. You did, you did make a good point, though, is that like um, there is this rejection of even the category of normal anymore. Yeah. And there seems to be um, uh, there's a lot underneath that, but if but if you can't even define normal, then you probably can't define extremism. Yeah, and I'm so it's important to have the conversation. Normal. What even is extremism? Yeah. So extremism is like what I said. I think that it's anything that goes against social norms to a kind of alarming or like taboo type of of scenario. Which it could be for for you. My tattoos are kind of extreme, right? Like I would never do that. Like, but 
you know, you did, and that's yeah. extreme body art, right? Not to me. To yeah. me, extreme tattooing is the lizard man that dyes his eyeballs, splits his tongue, has implants under his skin, and 99% of his body tattooed to look like a lizard. We definitely agree on that. So that's extreme tattooing. But to me, I'm not an extremist. But he is. And, like, so my next question is, like, when does something become extreme to him? I mm-hmm. say that to digress and take a different road now. In the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, homosexuality was a taboo. It was something we didn't talk about. It didn't exist. It was to come out as, as gay, that was extreme, right? It was an extreme lifestyle, extreme risk. They pinned the HIV epidemic on like half of the gay community. They was like, oh, gay people get AIDS, right? Before we ever did public health approach, it was like, it was just a scapegoat. When we, as a society, became socially acceptable of homosexuality, we opened a door to more extreme homosexuality. Which, what is more extreme to a homosexual than a transsexual? Oh, you're gay? Watch this, hold my beer. Yeah. I am a girl. Like, I still want to sleep with guys, but I'm going to extremely make my body a female so that it's, like, it's not gay, but it's, like, ultra gay, in a sense, because I'm, I'm still a guy, and I'm going to sleep with a guy, but I'm a girl, and you have to call me. Like, at what point does somebody else's self-image, do I have to play into that? Yeah. Right? I will call you whatever you want, but... Don't expect me to lie to my children at home about it. Like, yeah, so this is this is important, and I did want to talk to you about this because I think what we have to do is we have to be fair. Because I don't I don't think you, like to you some people like you, they change the the language, right? Like, there's no real argument around transsexual. Gender is fluid. Okay, so then sex is absolute. No, sex is not absolute. Yeah. Sex is conceptual. Then why do you want to teach it to my fifth? five-year-old in school if it's conceptual and conceptual brains can't understand concepts till at least high school so then your arguments be well no because we want to increase look gay people didn't want to go hang out at at schools Mm -hmm. for some reason trans people do okay okay so let me ask this i was going to ask you something but i'm going to ask it a different way why do you think we are so quick to talk about the extremism of the KKK, but not the extremism of transgenderism? Because we're just not there yet. It's such a new concept, right? Like 50 years ago, you didn't have anybody going. I mean, look, I mean, like who, when we think about like transgender, who's the first person we think of? We think of Caitlyn Jenner, right? Formerly Bruce Jenner, still kind of Bruce Jenner, mm-hmm. but like more of a Bruce-ish Jenner, right? <laughs> um but so that was like the pioneer. Like he won, she won Woman of the Year award yeah. ahead of an entire world of other women. How disrespectful is that to women? I mean, that's just a question I have. Like yeah. whoever nominated her, he like whoever nominated her found something in her. I would call her her. It's I mean whatever like. I'll call a dog a chicken yeah. if that's what you want me to do. But that was so disrespectful to real women. And what it said was that if I make any distinction between a real woman and a fake woman, 
then I am homophobic, transphobic, misogynistic, and it's like, no. Well, it's not only that. You're also... Um, you're... I'm opening the door to violence against the trans community. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And self-violence. Self-violence. Yeah. yeah, like, they, they want to harm yourself. I, I don't think that my comments and, like, my views, like, dude, we can disagree on something, and you're not going to go out here and harm yourself, right? Mm -hmm. But, like, if you're trans, you're going to... And it's just a talking point yeah. to make you feel bad about standing up for what you what you feel. So, so here's this important thing. So if I, maybe not if I see a dude in a white robe burning a cross in a lawn, am I going to go up to him and be like, hey, we need to talk. Uh, so Daryl Davis, yeah, who's a yeah. friend of mine, Daryl Davis does that. He's nice. a black guy from... Yeah, uh, he was on Rogan, right? Yeah, he was on Rogan. Um, like, I mean, like he, he helped me a lot in the beginning and like I kind of took it and ran with it. Like, I've done a lot well, of work well, with Let me Davis. finish my thought, because what I was going to say is that, like, uh, I'm, I'm probably not going up to that dude, but I do want to talk to that guy because I want to say, hey, listen, the path that you're on is not a healthy one. It's not ultimately going to lead you to fulfillment, blah, 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 blah. And so the other thing is that, like, so I want to get into this conversation with you about, um, about extremism on the left, because <laughs> my issue is that I feel like that extremism is being used as a tool specifically to target the right. So if you ask me, I would say it is an extreme suggestion to say a man can get pregnant. It is an extreme suggestion to say well, it's not that. It's an extreme suggestion. It's a lie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like. It's, an ex it's a radical viewpoint. Um, and it's a radical viewpoint to suggest that full body plastic surgery is actually gender affirming care. That's like. That's that's, that's a radical ideology. Yeah. Um, like my how, wife wants to get lip lip a lip job. Like that's cool. Like but like yeah, we're we're not we're not definitely. That's not not like having your genitals removed and reconstructed. Like see now you're really gonna get in trouble. All right, so um, I'm gonna pull a Dave Chappelle and be like, I'm not saying they're not women, but that that they got down there, you know, right? Like it's not, <laughs> but it's that's not beet juice. Yeah. So, so the point is, is um, what is your thoughts about the fact that we seem to have a clear understanding of what extremism looks like on the right, right? It looks like perhaps the Oath Keepers and January 6th and the Ku Klux Klan. It looks like Charlottesville. But when you say, what is extremism on the left? We don't really know. And I mean, and then we have our president coming out there That's and saying... That's because we're not allowed to define it on the left. It's taboo. It's, it's their rules. Mm -hmm. Like... It's you can't talk about us. It's our rules. It's a pendulum, okay? It's polar opposites. In order for the right wing extremists to exist, you have to have left wing extremists. Mm -hmm. um, pull a necklace to one side and drop it. If you take away one of them poles, it's just going to stop, right? We want to end right wing violent extremism and left wing extremism. You want to end left wing extremism and right wing extremism. Like, yep. what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Yep, both of them. Yep. Now, we're going to have to have some conversations, I think, on what that is because there is one side of the aisle that definitely wants to normalize things that are radical. But pushing that aside, um, what, I, what I wonder is, um, is, well, let me ask this. Um, because I think you defined extremism really good, but, but, I, but I want to give you my definition of it and just kind of have you interact with it because, because I think that we need to have a definition of extremism that includes both the left and the right. That, that includes um, uh, any radical ideology wherever it may find itself. So I just toyed around with this is my own little personal definition that I came up with today. So give me some grace here. But um, I think extremism looks like 
an agenda in search for an idea that is willing to pervert the idea for the sake of the agenda. Now, give, let me give you a little bit of a deeper explanation so that it makes sense. So in the Christian worldview where I come from, what this looks like perhaps is what we call isogesis. That means when we read the Bible, we look into the Bible and we make it say whatever we want it to say. This is what the Ku Klux Klan does, right. for instance, in terms of like passages about black people and such. But, but that's eisegesis. And so the correct way to read the Bible Extra is exegesis GC. from outside of the scripture. Yeah. Or sorry, from, from the scripture to you rather than you taking your interpretation and placing it on Reading the Reading the passages above it and below it to get a full... So they got it in context, all that yeah. stuff. And so the idea is that... When you ha do eisegesis, what you have is an agenda that you bring to the table, and it infuses everything that you're doing. And to me, that's what extremism looks like, is it's an agenda that's constantly in search of an idea, and it will pervert any idea to match the agenda. Absolutely. I can get behind that 100%. Uh, for example, like we have at Parents for Peace, where I work, we have the first non-government-funded helpline. So mm -hmm. it's not affiliated with the U.S. government at all, where families can call and gain resources, get some guidance, and we can actually work one-on-one -on -one with the person in question uh, that's getting involved in extremism. And I can tell what state somebody's calling from based on their complaint. <laughs> so my son, my son has, he has a Trump flag. And I'm like, oh, it's not illegal to be a conservative. Like, I mean, my neighbor has a Biden flag. Like, yeah. It's it's okay. Like, you can't just label somebody extremism, like, because it's such a like it's a harmful word, mm -hmm. right? Like, it's a very harmful word to throw around at somebody. Same as sexist, same as homophobic. Like, the people that are labeling people as homophobic and sexist today have no idea what it is. Yeah. Right. It's like you said. It's a narrative to fit an agenda to pervert a cause. Like. The real sexist wouldn't allow women to have jobs. And, like, I mean, we still have a long way to go in women's rights, right? True. But, like, I think that, like, the real, like, to he, like, I've heard people call people I know a racist and not know my background. And I'm like, go on. Like, come on, tell me about what racism is. Well, racism is, and I'm like, are you a racist? Why, no, I was. So you're telling me what my like my forte was right mm -hmm. like go ahead and explain it to you. i had a kid on a ball team the other day and i was like we were playing 18 outs i walk up to hand him the ball and i was like all right start he goes i know how to do it <laughs> excuse me you know how to okay tell me how you do it well i kind of know how to do it. no coach play the game and don't mess up and like he was very on the spot so like when you do that to people and you call them out and you're like no wait a minute Let's talk about what you think, because the words you're using doesn't mean what I think you think it means, mm -hmm. right? So, like, let's work through this, because it's our job to send people away less ignorant than they came to us. And if we're not doing that, then we're actually becoming a little more ignorant ourselves. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, so extremism uh, lies clearly on both sides, then, um, and hopefully my definition was clever enough to hopefully include anybody that wants to pervert the truth for the sake of whatever agenda they have. Um, and, I was, and I think that that ultimately is the thing that is going to divide us. I talk about this a lot on the podcast when I kind of do my weekly shows. Is I talk about if there's a thing that's going to separate us, it's not going to be sexual orientation. Nope. It's not going to be politics. It's nope. not going to be religion. It's going to be the fact that we can't agree upon a basic it's be baseline Democrat and understanding of truth. 
It's going to be Democrat and Republican. I mean, we see it now. It's the only socially acceptable form of extremism is to hate your neighbor based yeah. on who they vote for, yeah. right? Like, I mean, but but, the, let me, but let me ask a question about this though, because what I wanted, what I really want to know, and I think you guys would probably have this question as well. So I hope I'm not stealing it from you for later. Is is extremism as prominent? as perhaps the media or even the White House who comes out and says, you know, that Merrick Garland comes out and says that the greatest threat facing America now is white extremism. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, no. I, can, I can count on uh, one hand, zero, how many Klan members I've met. Now, that doesn't mean anything because that's just my personal experience, but I'm just saying, how prevalent is it? How really divided are we as a nation? Or is there something else that is underneath all of that? I think is it clickbaits from the media? I think that that it's it's very sensational. Yeah, you know, white supremacy extremism is is sensational, right? It gets clicks, like you said, um, and it's a narrative to push. Uh, a narrative without a definition is an easy narrative to push. Yeah. If everything's racist, then everything's racist. If but by logic, is, yeah. if if it is, then it isn't. If everything, if everybody's gay, then nobody's gay because gay doesn't exist. If everybody's racist, racist doesn't. It's like the the yin yang. Yeah. The white fish needs the black fish to exist, and you know it, it realizes that. Without the other, it, it doesn't exist at all. So it doesn't eat the other one. They just chase each other. Um, and I think that it's it's, in my opinion, one of the more important things that are going to destroy this country and more prevalent are wokeness. Hmm. This idea that you are alienating an entire portion of the United States away from like their concrete views and beliefs, right? Yeah. And it's one of the things that we're allowed to have in this country un you know, we're not allowed to be persecuted for what we believe, what we what we find to be our pursuit of happiness and the right to life, right? Yeah. And the desire by this woke left to take those rights away so that they can, you know, divide us for like, if there's ever any kind of like civil war, it's going to be people standing their ground because they've been pushed so far into a corner. They feel like the only solution at this point is violence. Yeah. And it's just like it was. I mean, look how long it took for the Revolutionary War to actually happen. Yeah. Look how long it took for the Civil War to actually happen. Look how long it took for, you know, violence is not our first response as humans. It's not. It's, we will succeed ground. I've succeeded grounds in family conversations. Okay, you know what? For the sake of argument, you're right. I, I digress. I, I, you know, but it keeps going. It keeps going. And eventually they will take from you as much as you will give them. And when you stop being a doormat and you become a... When you become difficult, they want to label you yeah. based on what they like. You're going to be a racist. Yeah. You know, you're going to be, I mean, like, yeah, I I'm, I'm going to catch, I'm going to catch pushback for this, but I feel like white people in this country at this point are the only ones who are accused of racism anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I'm not saying that it's. Well, there's an idea behind that, that really white people are the only people who can be, because this is what I was going to say is that there's this. There's this ideology that we need to be aware of, um, and it's within the woke kind of rubric. That's, of I know that's a, a thing we throw around, but essentially the woke ide- ideology is the idea that there are 
um, two groups of people, the oppressed and the oppressor. And, um, and ultimately, extremism seems to me to be this tool used to classify people as the oppressor. So anybody that disagrees with me is an extremist. And this certainly seems to be happening. I want to be bipartisan here, but it's happening a lot on the left. If you disagree with me, you're the extremist. Um, and, and it's really just an attempt to, to try to castigate people and to put you in this, uh, in the, in this category of, of an oppressor. And this is why I think it is so important that we have conversations and push back against these things. And I think Christians especially are squeamish about that. But the reality is, is that I think there is nothing more benevolent than destroying a worldview that is built upon lies because you want to help people not live that way if at all possible. This is why I think it is so important for us to become informed and to have these kind of conversations and when these, um, these labels are thrown around to fight against them because maybe another thing to say about this is, is what you just said is if everything is racist then nothing is racist. Now think about that because if we don't push back on the label throwing of extremism wherever somebody is disagreed with, then you're, you're, expo you're risking destroying a whole category that is extremely important to correctly identify so that we can actually eradicate it. Yeah. It makes me wonder, too, if it's not an attempt to just not deal with it at all or eradicate it or to keep it around so well, that I we mean, can continue point a, fingers. It's a tool. Like, why would you throw away the tools that you use to keep yeah, that's people what I mean. divided? Yeah. yeah, I mean, like, there's no desire to eradicate hate and division in this country. If anything, we're seeing more and more ways every day to inject division. Like, it's, it's almost as if it's by design to keep us to fight against each other. Yeah. Um, and when we are conflicted with each other, we don't stand up to the ones who are really oppressing us. Yeah. You're right. There is the oppressors and the oppressed. Everybody that lives below the high, you know, rich, like, the, we're the oppressed. We are the farm product right we are the crop everybody from the like the you know people say there's this this governing body there is politicians are farmers they use us as their crop hmm. right and you think about the way schools are ran dude like schools are ran to create a workforce not a um you know a, a world changing force you know, from the first days of school, you're, you're indoctrinated into being a worker, a good little worker bee. You show up every day. You don't miss any days. You're, you're very functional in the amount of curriculum that they need you to know. Well, to be I'll, I'll, say, I'll say this because we have some teachers here. I'll say um, in some ways that is 100% true, and it's very true in terms of sometimes the mechanism of the public school education. But thank God for good teachers who fight against sometimes the, the natural tendency for government programming to overrule the better nature of um of some teachers and thank god for some teachers who just refuse to do that yeah so. all right so um with that being said um i, I think i just went because we got a running out of time and i want to i definitely wanted to ask you this last question because i always like to try to end on a um on a kind of redemptive note. Um, so maybe there's a little bit of crystal ball involved in this, but also not necessarily because you're actually dealing with people on a regular basis who sometimes you see them in the depth of extremism and you see them come out of it. You know your own story and how you were able to come out of, um, I mean, after being molested, after uh, seeing your friend die right in your arms, 
um, and and having certain stimuli kind of reinforce hate, you saw yourself come out of that. Um, so there's there is hope at the end of the day. Um, so I guess the first part of this question is is do you think that right now we are prepping for an irreparable division in this country, or do you feel like we're going to find a way to come back together? America's the greatest country on earth, man. Like, we're going to find a way through it. We're going to come together. We always have. Um, like, I have no doubt that we're going to we're gonna figure it out. Like, I'm not worried that irreparable damage will be done. I mean, if slavery as a whole couldn't be considered as irreparable damage and we've come back from that, yeah, um, we still have a lot of work to do, but we've come back from it, then I don't think there's anything that can destroy this country. That's awesome. Okay, good answer. All right, then the, the second part to that question is, is what have you seen as uh, be that tool to really help people in the midst of their real hate or their real extremism or whatever they're dealing with, when you've dealt with these families, when you've dealt with these individuals, what is that thing that has provided a deeper sense of peace and unity uh, that have helped people come out of extremism? you got to meet people where they're at. you got to figure out what the trauma that they're using to numb with hate. What is their trauma? There's always a trauma. There's always a what. Yeah. There's always a what started. So let me ask for clarification because I think we already talked about this, but just for clarification's sake. So it's... So if a person hates black people, it may not necessarily be that they hate black people. Absolutely. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Like, it's just a drug of choice. You yeah. know, I mean... It's a symptom of the malady. Yes. It's okay. definitely... There's something that causes it, but it doesn't reflect anything on the person that is being targeted at all. Uh-huh. Right? Like, I hated people based on my experiences, but there's a lot of people out there that will have experiences with white people but become racist towards black. Yeah. And it's just, you just meet people where they're at. And the one thing that you need to realize is that extremism doesn't make sense. So stop trying to make it make sense. Yeah, 100%, man. That's so good. Um, I, I, the, the only thing that I thought about with that is, is hate is a heart issue. We are definitely not going to solve it by pointing fingers um, or by placing people in extremist categories. We have to have, I think, a reckoning of meaning um, of, of why we exist. I think we have to have these questions, these conversations once again about what life is really all about and try to help people find, um, healthy community because they'll be looking for it in all of the, they'll be looking for it in the garbage dump of society if they cannot find it in, um, in healthy places. That's where I found it. So, so people need to go to church is what I'm saying at the end of the day. Um, you guys, go to church. <laughs> um, and take your vitamins and drink your milk. Um, sure. No, um, dude, I, I, I want to thank you for all the work that you've done to, um, to set people free from their hate. Yeah. Um, because not only is it huge that you were able to overcome it, but it's also huge that now you're helping other people overcome their, yeah. their hate. I, I think, you know, I don't know that we did have the time to really dig into that question that we already asked uh, like I would have liked, but I, but I do believe that our political, uh, I think there's a political class that definitely wants resentment because they can capitalize on it. And I definitely think the media wants clickbait for their own financial gain. Um, so I think there's a group of people out there that are incentivized by perpetuating these things, but, but there are people like us, the commoners, the, the, the plebes who can actually 
make a difference and yeah. um, and do something about the frustration that we have on the news. And, that, and I'll just end this way. And of course, you can say anything you want. Um, this is why I don't like it when we say, well, I'm just so exhausted. And I, oh, the news media. And uh, I'm, I just can't take it anymore. Too much drama. I need to plug out for a second. Okay, so maybe, yeah, like take a break, but get back in the fight. Because they are going to be them. But it doesn't mean that you can't be who... I would say God's made you to be, and you can make a difference. You can step in there. You can be the difference that people need in the world. Yeah. And maybe it starts with a conversation. Maybe it starts with a kind gesture that maybe nobody's ever gotten before, or um, maybe just sharing your story with, with another person. We can be the difference if, if we step out there and, and try to be. Yeah. I, I agree. I agree. Um, being willing to have the difficult, uncomfortable conversations is the first step. Like, we are the element of change in everybody that we meet, if we choose to be. Um, take the time, unplug, recharge, but like you said, I, I like that. Get back in the fight at your earliest convenience, because it's up to you to be the agent of change. Amen. All right, uh, so I'm sure these guys have some questions. You guys have been thinking about your questions uh, for a little bit now. If, uh, if you will go ahead and line up, just single file line at the podium where you can ask your question, uh, go ahead and do that. I know you may be standing in line while the questions are going on, but that helps us kind of move quickly. So if you've got a question, go ahead and, um, uh, go ahead and get in line. And All right, go ahead with your first question. Chris, first of all, thanks for your boldness, man. This is awesome. Uh, keep up the good work. Uh, I was curious in your experience, both uh, involved in the KKK, but now also on the outside of it and helping people escape from extremist groups. Are you seeing, you know, anything sort of overarching in terms of, you know, left and right groups uh, trying to be controlled or, or used, you know, as puppets or even if there's even coordination between some of these extremist groups, you know, like a KKK and an Antifa that actually um, do coordinate in a way? So they're pretty equal and opposite mm -hmm. uh usually one shows up to you know confront the other there's there's not a whole lot of work between antifa and, and kkk and white supremacist um they're they're pretty separate and unique to their own mm -hmm. uh radicalization so yeah. and not to say that these are well-intentioned individuals but at the same time do you see them being sort of co-opted by you know some of these as you were referring to kind of upper echelon you know, powers that be, you know, to use them as tools to uh, accomplish an end. He means the FBI. <laughs> no. Um, so I, I don't, I don't, I haven't experienced that yeah. in my work, but I mean, that's not to say that there's not some crazy stuff happening out there, but, um, you know, I, I do, I do think that there's a lot more and what we get to witness as society and, and me and my work is just the tip of an iceberg. So, I mean, I don't want to say no, but I don't want to say Not yes either. It's plausible. Sure. I guess. Thanks. Okay. Awesome. All right. Um, I work with teenagers every day. I'm one of those teachers that we're talking about. And what are some of the warning signs maybe that, that to look for, um, with someone that may be brought into extremism or maybe thinking about that? And then kind of what are some of the first steps maybe to take when you, when you see those things? So I would, uh, like, it's going to be really hard to remember all this, but I'm going to give you a cheat sheet. Okay. Pull a list of substance abuse red flags off and, and look at those, like, cognitive red flags, right? Withdrawn, 
radical change in the way they talk, radical change in the way they dress, um, you know, just a lot of like really like definite changes that you'll notice, right? Like if a kid has a lot of friends, he's really popular, he always dresses a certain way, comes in the next day and he's, you know, wearing like a, a Muslim, you know, dress attire, there's a good chance that you might want to have a talk with him because it's not bad to, to convert to Islam, but it is bad to convert to Islam under a totalitarian type of, you know, fundamentalist idea. So, I mean, like, just being attuned to your kids and when they make a major change and something stands out, like, that usually will do it. Cool. Thanks. Awesome. Well, uh, Reed, thanks for having us here. Chris, thank you for being super transparent. I've got to speak upon you talking about the grooming of the military in the, in the schools. That was just fantastic. Um, you thought I was going to say something bad. No. <laughs> no. I mean, like, yeah. I get a lot it's, more people that are like, yeah, I, I like that than, yeah, than not. It's, um, I've thought about that for a long time. Um, no businesses are coming in and grooming kids, but the military can come in and groom your kids. In fact, they've, they are, you've, you've got to take the ASVAB. And um, you can take it at the school. Yeah, yeah. So, so thanks for speaking on that. But uh, my, uh, I had a couple of questions. But uh, the main question I was going to ask: What do you feel? I know the the current administration. You know, kind of touched on it a little bit. Um, they're really focused on specific white extremism, um, which you kind of you talked about how um, when we focus on just white extremism, that's a that's kind of you know just it's not broad enough. But what do you feel? from what you've studied and your experience, what is the, the largest extremist threat uh, for the United States in, in particular? Political. Political extremism. Uh, I touched on it earlier, like the fact that, so most all of your other extremisms are taboo, right? Like you, you can't be a white supremacist and nobody like push back on it. You can't be uh, an Islamist or a homophobe or whatever the phobes that we're using are now. So like, but you can openly call your liberal friend a libtard in front of people and like degrade them based on their political affiliation. And it's 100% acceptable and borderline encouraged. Yeah. Right. So like, it's going to come down to political extremism and violence towards each other. We're not there yet, but you look at right-wing extremism. Right-wing extremism has been branded right-wing to tie white supremacy to Republicans, yeah. Yeah. right? I know a lot of Republicans, and none of them are white supremacists. So, to like, I get it. Like, you have the far right, but, like, if there's a far right, that means there has to be a far left. And who are they willing to allow to be part of that far left, mm -hmm. you know? or anybody like is it only far-right extremism like when we when we don't focus on all forms of extremism the broad spectrum we leave the door open for things like boston marathon bombing 9-11 and all these other our opportunistic attacks that that happen because we're we're not man in the post that's good Thank you. Uh, stay there uh, because you, I, if you have another question, stay there. But but I want to dig into that a little bit further because I can't have you here and not ask about the January 6th question because yeah. in my mind, January 6th just seems to be political hackery. It just seems to be a smear tactic because the DOJ could be involved in, I'm going to prophesy here, they will never be 
uh, to actual file criminal charges. Um, they are not going to be because they actually don't have criminal standing in a court of law. So what they're actually doing is they're trying to do what you said in my mind. And I, I want to get your so opinion. So the DOJ is But like let me finish up real quick. So they're trying to, um, they're trying to label the Republican Party as extremist and to tie white supremacy to the Republican Party so that anybody that will be seen voting for them is a white Racist. supremacist or an extremist. Yeah. So that's what January 6th seems to be to me. So I have my own thoughts on January 6th. A lot of the people that showed up there were veterans. All right. And by the way, let me I'm sorry. The January 6th commission, not necessarily what happened on January right. 6th. I should um, It's a sham job. Like, it's the only trial I've ever seen that you didn't get to, like, provide context or cross-examination. Yeah. Um, it's completely has its own agenda. Uh, and it's to make the Republican Party look bad ahead of the midterms. Um, they're always going to be the January 6th, like, party now. Yeah. Um. But, yeah, if they really wanted to do damage and that was a terrorist attack, they would have brought their guns, and they didn't. And the only person that was killed in the January 6th attack was Ashley Babbitt, mm -hmm. uh, an Air Force veteran. So, like, when we talk about the people that were traumatized or, or you know, that lost their life during that, that terrorist attack, the only one that lost their life was Ashley Babbitt by a cop who had openly left his gun in the bathroom on many occasions and probably didn't deserve to be a police officer to begin with and admitted openly that he knew that she wasn't armed. So, like, mm. where's the justice for Ashley? Yeah. Go ahead. Thanks for having us, by the way. It's awesome. Uh, so I had a quick question. Or it's a two-parter. Um, there's an analogy that I like, and it's the only difference between a superhero and a supervillain is what they decided to do with the tragedy or the transgressions and their trial and tribu tribulations that they had happen to them. So one decides to fight crime, one decides to spread crime. Um, you could see that in today with um, a child that gets abused and wants to, or bullies that wants to shoot up a school, then instead of maybe a child that wants to grow up and be a psychiatrist for those very people. So my two-parter question for you would be, in your life, what has made you want to fight and be that superhero now? You know, was it, is it God? Is it kids? Is it wife? What was that thing that made you want to fight? And then the second part to that would be, what keeps you from turning back to the villain? Because it is such a hard hmm. era for you to live in, you know, said with all the hate that you have, because it is pretty extreme, you know? You got homosexuality everywhere, you have racism everywhere, there has to be some type of pull. So what keeps you from going back? So I guess I'll answer the first part. Um, I think the thing that helped me decide to, to be the person that I'm trying to be is, you know, those kids right there. Um, leaving the world a better place for them than when I found it. Uh, taking back the bad that I put into the world exponentially and trying to replace it with positivity. Um, for 150 some years, we've, uh, even longer, we dealt with racism and hate in this country. And consistently, our ancestors, our forefathers have decided to put it off. We'll deal with that later. Let's deal with this now. And it's like, I'm not doing that to them. Like, mm -hmm. we're gonna have at least a starting point for them to take it and run with. Um, I seen the way I was manipulated into being somebody else's tool 
Mm-hmm. Always. I was always somebody else's tool. I was, I was never just Chris. I didn't know who Chris was. From the time I joined the Army, I, was, I represented the Army. That was my identity. When I was in the Klan, I represented the Klan. That was my identity. When I was on drugs, I was a drug addict. That was my identity. And, like, I sat back and, and I'm like, who am I? And the way for me to decide who I am and, and who I don't want to be is to look at my kids, and if it makes them smile, then, then I'm on the right path. Yeah. That's so beautiful. I do want to follow up. I'm not an expert on extremism, uh, but I do know a thing or two about this. Um, I would say um, the next generation, our family, our loved ones, is an important thing. But I also think, too, as sterile as, as, sterile as this is going to sound, I think we have to, as a society, get back to truth. And by truth, I mean morality. A, a conversation about what is right and what is wrong. Otherwise, we're going to be a ship without a sail or without the wind in the sail, and we're just going to continually float around fighting each other, pointing fingers at each other, unless we can once again actually agree that there is such a thing as right, there is such a thing as wrong, there is such a thing as truth, there is such a thing as lies, um, and and have some basic agreement. What I, what I guess somebody like Alexander Hamilton will call a social contract that holds us together with what what a basic sense of morality looks like. Now, as a Christian, I think one of the things that needs to be uh, appreciated, but I won't even make this an identity thing or a religious thing, I would just say, um, from, from a perspective of thousands of years old wisdom um, and what the Bible has to offer on the subject of morality, right and wrong, we should get back to a place where we can once again appreciate the scripture as a, as a public um, tool for public conversation and, and public morality. Um, now, I know that's probably a hard sell for some people if you're not a Christian, but I'm, but I'm trying to make an appeal to those who are even not Christians to say this, that if you think the direction of our society is worse off now that we are a post-Christian nation, we may need to think about returning to what we left behind if, 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 that's, uh, so if it looked better back then. I think, I think it's... That for me is one of those things that like we could have a separate discussion on because, you know, originally as a constitutionalist, the only thing the Constitution says about God is that we should separate it completely from the way well, we that run the our government country. should not establish exactly. A church. So separation of church and state, right? Um, it was the 1950s when "In God We Trust" and "One Nation Under God" was added to our country. So. When I hear people say we're a Christian nation founded on Christian principles, I can say, okay, yes, because that was a way of life for people that are our founding fathers. But they seen fit to not let one party get too strong. And if you make this a Christian nation, then it is a Christian nation. And it went from being not a Christian nation to being a Christian nation to now kind of not being a Christian nation. And I look at it as like the rabbit and the lynx. Right? When there's an influx of rabbits, you're going to have a rise in the lynx population because there's a stabbed food source. But when that food source drops, the population of the lynx drops, and then the rabbits grow, and then the lynx grow. So you have this, this process. You can look at it all the way as far back as, yep. as like, you know, we've, we have documented time. Um, I think that the Bible provides a very good basis for how to 
raise your children and how to, you know, be the, the spiritual leader of your family if that's what you choose to do. Yeah. Um, it's a basic set of rules and principles that any person from any background can look at and say, this is, this is, a, this is okay. I can get behind this, yeah. you know? Yeah, I think that's great. I, and, and just as simply as this, like if you're going to punch me in the face and tell me it's wrong, you're going to have to tell me why. Um, so what's your why? And whether you're a Christian or not, you believe in the Bible or not, you better come up with a compelling why. Okay, go ahead. Thank you for what you had to share this evening. It related a lot to my own life and establishing my own identity as to who I am, believing in myself, having confidence in myself, when I was in college, I couldn't sit there where you are because I was so scared about what other people thought of me. And so <clears throat> your comments about identity sank deep, deep into my heart. And as you share that with me, I share your pain. And I look at these children that are growing up without that identity, without those parents. You know, in my mind, if you're born with male genitals, you're a male. Female genitals, you're a female. Now, you might want to be the other sex. Well, you know, I'm 61, but maybe I feel like I'm 50. Somebody that's 12 that feels like he's 16 can't just go get a driver's license. You know, who you are is what you are. But when we confuse our new generation and they have parents, and they're both, you know, of the same sex. To me, I think that messes with their identity. Okay. We as a church are seeking to have an identity in Christ. You know, we have our identity in Christ. But here, I'm here to share with you, but I think a lot of these facts the church is, is missing, they're missing a lot of the reality. They're missing the fact that narcissistic behaviors in our culture is growing. I mean, it's, it's growing rapidly, which entails all this control, which involves radicism, um, living a person whom you're not, relating you to your identity, okay? A narcissist lives to be one person, but inside there's somebody else. Who I'm they sorry, really but we are running, like. we're running a little low on time, so if you could get to a question, that'd be great, thank yeah, you. Yeah. Okay, so I just wanted to um, ask a question regarding your identity. How do you think this is going to affect the, the, the new generation of, of our kids um, with this identity crisis? Well, I mean, we've seen identity crisis in the past. Uh, I, I think that this is the most harmful one because it actually encourages a transition period medically and body, you know, body modification. Um, but I think that, I think that with the right type of counter narratives and those counter narratives being allowed to be openly discussed, then we can provide the counter narratives that the kids need to be like, that's crazy. Mm -hmm. You know? So I just think that it, it comes back to parenting. And parents being allowed to make the decision of how they want to teach their children. Yeah. Speaking of the next generation, we've got a couple of little ones who have a question, apparently. Go ahead, boys. How long and hard did it take you to get out of all the bad stuff? 
How long did it take me to get out of all the bad stuff? Oh, let's see. I'm 39 now. I'd say 39 years and counting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, work in progress. Bad is conceptual, man. Um, you know, what's bad to one person might not be bad to another. And, uh, you know, I'm working every day to be the best person I can be. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Um, I really appreciate you, appreciate your time, appreciate your interest in the subject. Uh, and thank you so much for your questions, too, for those of you who ask questions. Really, really great. Um, inspired me as well. Uh, thank you, Chris, for being here. I appreciate all your work, man. Absolutely, man. And thank you guys for watching. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. We'll catch you next time. All right, guys. Our thanks again to our guests for being on the show today. Indie Thinker with Reed Uberman was brought to you by our sponsors. If you like what you heard today, please do us a big favor and give it a five-star review and like it and share it with friends. And if you want to hear more awesome guests, make sure to check out past episodes. Indie Thinker is a nonprofit paid for by our sponsors and the generous gifts of people like you. In order to hear more great guests like you did today, please consider giving a tax-deductible gift by going to IndieThinker.org. And just remember, your voice matters, but infinitely more when you think for yourself. <laughs> <laughs>